Hey, podcast listeners, it's Mike Doherty. We'll have a new Deeper Dig episode up tomorrow. But for now, we wanted to share some audio we thought you might want to hear. This is an unedited interview with Democratic candidate for governor Christine Hallquist, aired live on WDEV Radio last week. Our reporter Xander Landon and editor Colin Mine were guest hosts on The Dave Graham Show. They talked to Hallquist about a whole range of issues, including her stance on raising taxes, and it's a great primer on some of the things we'll be hearing more about leading up to the general election. You can hear The Dave Graham Show on weekdays from 9 to 11 a.m. on the air or at WDEVradio.com. Here's Xander, Colin, and Christine. Now back to The Dave Graham Show on WDEV, FM, and AM. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Xander Landon, reporter at VT Digger. I'm joined by Colin Mine, my news editor at VT Digger. And we are hosting the program, filling in for Dave Graham. We are joined in studio with Christine Hallquist. She just won the Democratic gubernatorial primary contest. She will be facing off against Phil Scott, incumbent governor, in the November general election. Christine, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. My first question is about you taking on Governor Scott. Analysts will say it's a pretty uphill battle for you. He's an incumbent. He's only ending the first term, two-year term. We have historically not unseated. Candidates have not been able to unseat first-term governors. This is probably going to be a very tough race. Where do you see the incumbent governor's vulnerability in this race? I see his vulnerability on economics. You know, I've been talking about the fact, you know, just saying no to new taxes is a no-brain activity. We need a governor who knows how to make strategic investments that gets a return on investment. Um, And and when I say that, I talk about infrastructure and the importance of building infrastructure. And, uh, you know, we we have to uh, grow our rural Vermont economy. Our rural communities are suffering, um, and it's and it's not going to be solved by just saying no to new taxes. Um, we're seeing increasing rates of poverty, flights to the city, and an aging demographic, and that can be changed. Governor Scott seems to think that's a fact that can't be changed. I want to make it clear to folks: we can change that. You often attack the governor's pledge: no new taxes and no new fees pledge. The Republican Governors Association, as I'm sure you know, has been attacking you for your prior statements on your stance on raising taxes. They say that in the past you've been an advocate or you've said that you'd be willing to raise taxes and that you've made conflicting statements in recent days saying that you never said that. I just want to ask, set the record straight now, where do you stand on taxes? Um, Are you willing to raise them? If so, how and what initiatives would you be willing to raise them for? Well, let me just start by saying there's this thing called inflation. Every single person faces inflation. In fact, what you hear economists say is a moderate rate of inflation is good. Um, Deflation is bad. If our economy goes into deflation, we know we're in trouble. So, you know, I don't know why anybody thinks that the, the, the state government is immune from all the rising costs that are related to inflation. So so clearly, um, adjusting things for inflation is something we ought to be doing. In fact, we should have been doing that with our minimum wage. If we adjust the minimum wage for inflation since the late 60s, it'd be $22 an hour right now. 
So you would be in favor of raising taxes in Vermont to offset this inflation? Well, yeah. Well, I should also make it clear: who the heck is in favor of raising taxes? That's I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that's 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 a red herring, and and no no one is a no nobody ought to be in favor of raising taxes. Nobody's in favor of paying more. You talk about uh, strategic uh, investments, and you know, to me, it seems like the there's a few ways that the state can make strategic investments. You can create new fees, you can raise taxes. So I guess I'm wondering, sort of, when you talk about strategic investments, how do you generate that revenue, and what sort of initiatives do you think that the state needs that revenue to go towards? Okay, so I'll use a great, a good example on that. Um, when I talk about strategic investments, I'm talking about. Um, to, uh, to figuring out where, uh, first thing we got to do is figure out where to get the money from. The last thing we want to do, and I and I would say anybody that just comes along and tells you we're just going to raise the money, is is being fiscally irresponsible. You know, I've had leader managers working for me all the years, and they say, just give me some more money, I can get it done. No, that's not what we hired you for. We hired you to be fiscally responsible. So, for example, if we're going to pay for free college education, for for all students in Vermont, that's gonna cost $30 million. So where are we gonna get that money? We're gonna carry out the ACLU plan to uh, bring the prisoners back to Vermont and cut the prison population in half. That frees up more than $30 million. I mean, we're spending $140 million on, on our prisoners. Cutting in half, it theoretically would save 70, but it saves less than that. But it definitely can pay for a college education. I imagine that cutting the prison population in half would take years, if not decades. I guess I'm wondering how you plan on going about that. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of initiative that's not going to free up immediate funds. Yeah, you, you, like any other plan, you, you build the plan according to your revenue. You put the plan in place, we're going to free up $30 million over 10 years. Then, then you, 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 you fund your education on that same ramp. It's a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange is the best way to do that, of course. One of your signature proposals in your campaign so far has been your plan to expand broadband access into rural parts of the state and get electric companies basically to change their role in, in this process, get them to sort of help with the installation of, of broadband infrastructure. Could you explain your plan, I guess, in its simplest terms to listeners who may not be familiar with it um, and explain how it would work? Sure. We actually already have a number of companies that are providing fiber today. Um, and they're doing it at a very expensive model. The model that I propose, um, by having the electric utilities hang the fiber in the electric space, it's simply another wire. We don't need to have two separate companies managing this infrastructure. When you do it that way, it cuts the costs from $25,000 a mile to $10,000 a mile. That's, that's, that means you can take that low cost and fund that over 30 years and pay for it with the actual tariffs you charge for using it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's clear, but but it, the point is it pays for itself. So are you, by law, requiring these companies to become a part of this process? I guess how do you shift the structure so dramatically? Oh, yeah, sure. They're regulated utilities. They, they actually get their territory for carrying out the policy of the state. Let's not forget that we regulate those utilities through law. We actually have an absolute right to do that. And so your plan would involve new regulations to to add that requirement? It would involve changing current reg- regulations. Current legislation would 
change the regulations. They're already regulated, so right. they're not new. No, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I know one of the cons one of the concerns is that once this infrastructure is built, that then there's an ongoing cost to for upkeep and you know for rural residents. I mean, I think one of the main hurdles to providing fiber optic high speed internet is that you know, they're already facing a lot of costs. Affordability is already a huge issue that sort of adding another cost on top of that becomes unfeasible. So I guess I'm wondering sort of the the ongoing nature of this, sort of how you ensure that the state can afford upkeep and that residents can afford to pay for the internet that you might be providing. Well, well, first of all, it's paid for by the users. It doesn't impact it you if you're not using it. That's how the model works today. That's how it's being carried out all throughout the country. So it's not going to raise rates for those that don't use it. Um, it's those that are going to use it are going to pay for it and they'll actually end up paying less than they do today because they're paying for very expensive infrastructure today. So uh, it's not going to increase costs for people who are not using it. As I'm sure you know, um, Governor Scott has pretty broad appeal among more moderate Democrats. Um, I was talking to some Democrats at the polls the other day who supported the governor in 2016, they voted for him in the Republican primary um, on Tuesday because they like his fiscal conservatism and the fact that he does support some liberal initiatives, maybe not actively, but in a passive way, like gun control and the marijuana legalization that we saw this year. Um, how do you plan on targeting some of the more moderate Democrats and getting them to vote for you over Phil Scott in the general? I think they'll see that Governor Scott and I have some very similar policies on gun control. Um, we have, we're, he may call himself a fiscally conservative. I'm highly fiscally responsible. Um, so when, when you get to, to the difference between Phil Scott and I, it's going to be about a, a long-range vision that grows Vermont. Phil does not have a vision on how we're going to grow Vermont. He, he has us fighting over the scraps. But I'm going to get more food on the table. We talked to Rich Clark uh, a few minutes ago, and he was saying that you know because uh, both you and the governor have you know uh, you know an appeal particularly to the sort of moderates in your party that there's going to be you know it's this sort of battle for the center. It's going to be particularly important for you to come up with wedge issues that sort of uh, you know define your candidacy as opposed to the governor's. And I guess I'm wondering if you could talk about what some of those issues are going to be. Well, for, well, I will tell you. You know, I, 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 I do want to try to run this on, you know, what are the things we're going to do for Vermonters? So, so you know, I, I want to avoid a negative campaign as much as possible. But I will clearly point out that the governor is taking money from some really dark places. Um, you know, and I think you can judge a leader by where the money comes from. Follow the money. Um, and, you know, you have sort of, we, we spoke to Rich Clark as well yesterday for a story in VT Digger, and he was talking about, you know, mobilizing progressives is going to be, you know, you have an established sort of business record, um, but sort of, you know, showing uh, your progressive credentials is going to be particularly important to getting out, uh, you know, this sort of far left, not far left necessarily, just the left of the Democratic Party. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, in order to do that, you know, there's certain policies that would appeal to that group that might turn off the moderates in your party, or even moderate Republicans, perhaps. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how you sort of play the middle there and appeal to both groups of the party. You should know I'm really not trying to appeal to anybody. <laughs> you know, that's that that's called bad politics. I'm, I'm running on principle. 
you know, so I, so I'm going to keep referring to, and, and certainly my experience with all, with all the press over the past couple of days. There's a lot of divisive language in our politics. I'm going to stay completely away from that divisive language. So I'm going to let people label me any 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 way they want to label me. Um, but at the end of the day, some of these things we're calling progressive just seem to be things we should be doing in a civilized society. You know, providing people with health care, that's called civilized society. Uh, providing people a, a living wage, you know, that I don't understand how that's taken on these labels. I think that appeals to, to uh, 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 labels of any stripe. You know, so if you look what's, I'm going to really educate, especially the young people, on what's happened in the past 40, 50 years. There's been a systematic attack on the working class which is the majority of Vermonters. Um, you know, we, that transfer of wealth uh, is, has been systematic and, and planned, planful. And part of that success of that division of wealth has been because people have divided us. Um, one of your policies that, you know, is, is one that you've talked about and one that's listed among your, on your platform is sort of paving the way to a universal health care system. If you were governor, how would you do that? What would you want to see in your time in office for healthcare in Vermont? I will work really hard, and I've already talked, uh, started talking to other governors as of yesterday. Um, we are going to build a a coalition of states to accomplish this, because it's not going to come from the federal government, but it's we we do need to move there. The United States spends 18 cents of every gross domestic product dollar on healthcare. European countries spend eight and nine cents. You know, I would say, if you think about fiscal responsibility, all you got to do is remember those numbers. Other countries are doing it for half the cost and providing full health care to everybody. I don't need to say any more than that. It's in the numbers. So, but you wouldn't want Vermont on its own to pursue its, its own single-payer system. Vermont is only two-tenths of 1% of the national population. So, of, of course, we're a very small state. I, that's why I believe we need to form a coalition. Um, Christine, we were just talking about sort of, you know, how you're uh, planning to compete against Phil Scott's uh, financial backing. You know, he's got the Republican Governors Association uh, spending already a million dollars, and we can expect a lot more of that, especially now that you're seen as, you know, a strong contender for the race. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, you won't take direct corporate campaign donations. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what you expect from donors into PACs, perhaps, and sort of how you compete, knowing that you're going to be uh, beaten in the fundraising game, sort of how you compete with that? Well, you know, I'd be happy to take money from civil rights organizations, you know, and I think you really want to judge the candidate by where the money comes from. Follow the money. You know, so when you've got um, Phil Scott, who takes money from places like um, Purdue Pharma that manufactures Oxycontin, um, you know, that's, that's, I think, that's more important to see where it comes from. But at the same time, we have sworn off corporate donations, and I am convinced we need a bill, and I would propose that bill as governor to ban corporate donations in Vermont. That said, you know, we've already done pretty darn well with our excellent team. You know, we're scrappy, and we appeal to people for their, their emotional energy. Um, that obviously was highly successful, in, in our primary. Um, I certainly uh, did never, never expected to win by such a wide margin. So I think Vermonters are going to respond to the message of, of positive hope and aspiration. Um, so, so yeah, we're going we, to have a financial disadvantage, of course, uh, and I'm okay with that. 
Um, two days ago, the Democrats had a unity rally in Burlington uh, after the primaries just sort of coming together. And uh, notably absent from that meeting was James Ellers, who was throughout the campaign your sort of chief opponent uh, in the Democratic uh, primary. Um, I got, he said that he's not willing to endorse your candidacy until uh, you guys talk about sort of your position on corporate campaign donations. Um, I guess I'm wondering if you've had that conversation, if you plan to, and uh, whether you uh, care about James Ellers' endorsement. Well, you know, I'd be, I'm certainly happy to talk to James Eller. I haven't spoken to him, so I've heard a lot of secondhand things. So I really don't know what he's thinking. He hasn't reached out. Um, he hasn't uh, made an overture at all to you since uh, the since the results came in? No, he has not. Did he call you on election night? I think you had mentioned that I think all the candidates had, had called or, or maybe it was your campaign manager who had said that yeah um, he but did, congratulate no, he, you. i did not get a call from you him. didn't get a call from him yeah. um one thing your campaign manager said the other day is that in the hours after your victory i think it was something like 12 hours that six thousand dollars had come in in small donations from across the country i'm wondering if that number has been ballooning since then um since the national attention you've been getting is that something you're expecting to see um and are already seeing, continuing to see these small donations coming in just because of the historic nature and of your candidacy and the storytelling and the stories that are all over the, the country and the world? Well, yes, we are hoping for a lot of small donations. Um, that's, that is the best way to run a campaign. You know, I'm not aware of what we've received so far, but I do know we've received a lot of small donations over the past couple of days. I suspect that'll trickle down as the news stories, as the news cycle dies off. And we're going to, you know, it's going to get back to the old, you know, uh, uh, hard work. So, but yeah, yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could run a campaign with small donations? And I'm hoping that's the case. Um, <clears throat> one thing that we might expect to see happen um, is large Democratic organizations maybe forming their own PACs, like we see the RGA forming a PAC and putting a lot of money into it for Governor Phil Scott. We may see the Democratic Governors Association do the same thing for you. Maybe another sort of organization, PACs, spending money on your behalf. What would your reaction be? Is it something you want to see just to sort of stay on the same playing field as the governor in terms of fundraising? Is that money that you would oppose? Um, how would you react if we started seeing larger organizations spending on your behalf? Well, the, the interesting thing is we can't. By law, we can't talk to these organizations, so right. we're not in control of the message. Although we have had donors that have gone negative, uh, not donors, we have supporters that have gone negative on on social media, and we've talked to them, and they've and they've stopped. Um, you know, I I don't. You know, it's unfortunately you don't have total control of the message, but we will certainly do everything we can to make sure those packs. Um, don't you know? Don't start going negative and, and saying things that are. I mean, I just I've just seen some horrible things at the national level. Do you mean like attack ads? You don't want to. Yeah, see I don't that want to see attack ads about the governor. Yeah, yes, I that I, I definitely don't want to see that. Is you know they get I, you know I, I I don't mind discussing policy, but if they get personal, that is just absolutely off the table. Uh, two years ago, Phil Scott uh, beat Democrat Sue Minter in an election, and I guess I'm wondering what you took away from that election. You know, you've talked about you voted for Governor Phil Scott, um, which is obviously in the Democratic primaries was uh, used against you. Um, and I guess I'm wondering sort of, you know, you were one of those moderate Democrats, presumably moderates, who voted for Governor <coughs> Phil Scott over his Democratic opponent um, and sort of what you learned from that election that you'll bring to your own. 
Well, I think we, you know, my my learning from that is, and I, I, I worked really hard to get Obama elected and, and went, you know, got a personal invitation along with 500,000 others, got a personal invitation, but it was, but we went down to his, uh, his uh, inauguration in 2008. And I really kind of, I wouldn't say I checked out of politics, but I, but I, I was, I was able to say, okay, the country's in good shape. I'm going to focus on climate change. I think um, I did not educate myself enough um, when I cast my vote for Phil Scott because he's, this is obviously not what we wanted. But I will also say I'm doing my penance now. Was there something about Sue Minter that uh, you didn't like? No, I, I, I. I I can't say I didn't really get to know Sue Minter. I didn't take the time to to figure out what her platform. I knew Phil Scott. He was a nice guy. Ah, this is a safe vote. Um, and you know, I cer- certainly uh, regret not doing that homework. You have in recent days described or said that Phil Scott applies and uses the same GOP tactics that we see in Washington. What do you mean by that? I personally don't see Phil Scott as a particularly Trumpian figure. Um, I don't know if you're referring to Trump when you say that. What do you mean when you say he's using those tactics? He's focused on fear and division. Immediately upon my can my by getting the nomination, these these ads started coming out about fear. Christine's going to raise your taxes. It's really putting out false information to scare people. When you're using fear and division to get elected, you're using the National Republican Party tactics. Fear and division and attacking our public education system. That's that's the Republican playbook. Isn't it somewhat true that, uh, you know, Phil Scott has been dead serious about his commitment not to raise taxes and fees. You know, he has frustrated the Democratic legislature to no end. He has, you know, he won't tax corporations. That's, you know, pretty much anything that has the word tax and fee on it. Um, But you seem more open to that. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, when you're stepping to a debate and having to defend your stance on taxes and fees, like, you know, you are sort of opening the door to do that. And I guess I'm wondering whether or not um, that's something that you'll defend or whether or not you're sort of arguing that you have the same general position on taxes and fees. I'm going to... I'm going to argue we have the same general position on taxes and fees. However, I have a plan to grow Vermont. He does not. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just wanted to ask you one last question just about the historic nature of your candidacy. Obviously, you've been getting so much media attention about it, but I think it's an important question to ask. How does it feel to be the first transgender candidate to receive a major party backing in a gubernatorial race like this? I will say it's no surprise because that's why I love Vermont. This is this is what Vermont is all about. And we are going to continue to show the rest of the nation and the world what good democracy looks like. Great. Christine, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you coming here to the studio in Waterbury. And, uh, yeah, good luck. Thank you. Nice job.